It's good to see you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13 as we're back in our series going through the gospel according to Matthew. And the last thing we saw was the Lord Jesus speaking to us in parables, giving us a bunch of teachings, their stories and illustrations with a spiritual reality. And one of the major parables he told in that was the parable of the seed and the soils, how different people react to the gospel message of the kingdom. And now what's going to happen in chapter 14 is you're going to see the parable of the soils and the seeds happening in in real time, how people are going to respond to Jesus himself. And so let's look at the offense and the offer of Jesus beginning in chapter 13, verse 53. And we're going to read all the way through 1436 in the Christian Standard Bible. And so you can remain seated. It's a lengthy section. And so just let's follow along and listen to the word of Christ. And the Spirit tells us through our brother Matthew that when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there and he went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Chapter 14 At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He's been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. See, for Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it's already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. And he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces 
Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. So Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage. This I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore of Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe, and as many as touched it were healed. May God bless the reading of his word. So Jesus, we just saw... I hope as we read that you could kind of discern the parable of the soils and the seed happening. You could see people with faith. You could see people without faith. You could see Peter reacting in faith and not in faith. You could see a town recognizing him in faith. But it begins with Jesus returning to his hometown. And he does what he does everywhere, teaching, preaching, and inviting people into the kingdom of God. But the difference here now is that he's in his old stomping grounds. He's in Nazareth, where he played as an eight-year-old boy, where he climbed trees as a 12-year-old, where he worked in the carpenter shop with Joseph, sawing and sanding tabletops at 17 years old and sweeping up shavings and buying groceries He's at his hometown, and this is, these are very tight-knit communities. You, if you, I want you to imagine your hometown. Mine's the greater Houston area. I've been spring and Tomball and all, all over the place around here. And imagine the people that knew you when you were little. They still think of you in that time period that they knew you. Like the church I grew up in over in spring, every time I see the former children's director there, she always just calls me Jeffrey. No one else calls me Jeffrey, except my mother. And when Natalie's saying something like, Jeffrey, you forgot to take out the trash. Like the Cranfords here at Redeemer, Robert and Lisa Cranford. There they are. Members here at Redeemer now, they were my Sunday school teachers when I was in middle school. Where's it, middle school? And I bet they're thinking, I remember you as some goofy kid. And now you're some goofy adult. Like, yeah, not a lot has changed. So you got to imagine now that the people who knew Jesus from way back when hear him teaching in their synagogue, which is a, a satellite teaching center of the temple, and he's saying things that he would have said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's telling them, you've heard it said for years in this synagogue, but I say to you, you've heard it said by other rabbis that you like, but I'm here to tell you, you've heard it said, well, I am the son of man. I am the son of God. Come to me for salvation. And they're hearing Jesus teach these things and they're thinking, uh, we know your daddy. He's not a scholar. He made bar stools. And we know your brothers and sisters and they hear these things that Jesus says and they are immediately offended by him. This is what Matthew shows us, the offense of Jesus. See how they bring up Joseph's job? Look at chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, and look at verse 55. They say, hey, they're amazed at his teaching, his miraculous powers, but look at verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? They bring up Joseph's job because to do that, and look, listen, back then you were trained in the family business. Like the expectation would have been Jesus is gonna become a carpenter. That's why when we meet Peter and his brothers, they're what? They're fishing with their dad. It's the family business. That's, and this is why Jesus at age 12, what is he doing? He's in the temple and he says, I'm about my father's business. So that's been the business of Jesus all along. But they think, no, you're supposed to be a carpenter. You haven't been trained to teach the Torah. You don't really know what you're talking about. So they hear Jesus saying all these things and they deduce, no, you weren't trained for this. You're a phony. You're faking it. You're a pretender. Get out of here, Jesus. See, they go from being astonished at what he's saying, but then they remember who he is, what he grew up with, and go, this, this is nobody to listen to. This is Mary and Joe's little guy. And the, the word in 57, they were offended by him. Literally, they turned their backs at him. It's, I couldn't help but think about, and if you know me, you know this is how my brain operates. I couldn't help but think about Seinfeld. There's an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza's mom and Frank Costanza, they're fighting, surprisingly. If you've ever seen the show, they're, they're having an argument. And they're, they're having some marriage difficulties. They're thinking about separation. And George's mom um, ends up taking advice from Jerry's girlfriend, Donna Chang. Donna Chang gives her relationship advice over the phone. She takes it and she loves it only because George's mom thinks she's talking to a wise, older Chinese woman. And she wants some ancient Chinese wisdom for her life. But then she meets Donna Chang and finds out she isn't Chinese. Her name is actually Donna Changstein, and she's from Long Island. And George's mom loses it, saying, we're getting separated. And George's like, why are you leaving dad? Well, I thought I was taking advice from an ancient Chinese woman. I'm taking advice from a woman from Long Island. These people hear Jesus and go, we thought we were getting advice from a rabbi. We're getting it from a carpenter's son? No, thanks. Some blue collar worker, I'm out. And they're offended by Jesus. And you see in 58, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It sounds like, what we need to notice here in 58, it sounds like the people's unbelief is clogged up Jesus' ability to do miracles here. Don't think of it that way at all. That's a cousin to the false prosperity gospel. That if you have faith, you're gonna get your healing. And if you aren't getting your healing, that financial increase 
It's because you don't have enough faith or you aren't getting that raise at work because you don't believe. That's way wrong. But look at what it says. It says Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their, he still did some. He, he still did miracles. Jesus not handcuffed by their unbelief. Rather, what this means is, what Matthew's communicating is, they, since they didn't want Jesus, since they turned their backs to Jesus, Jesus didn't give them miracles. They didn't want them. They rejected him. So Jesus, okay, you don't want what I offer? You're offended by me? Then I won't give it to you. Because a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. So listen, church, you're gonna try and, and make disciples and be on mission for Jesus. And here's what we just see about our Lord and those of us who are, are gonna live like our Lord. You are going to offend others by just the gospel. Hopefully not because we're rude and crude and belligerent, but because you're unwavering in your commitment to the Lord Jesus. In your hometown, those relationships that you've had forever, your, your family, the people who changed your diapers, your, diaper, your diapers, that drove you to ballet, that taught you how to drive. Then when you get bold for Christ and you start saying things like, you need to rethink your eternity, that you should look to Jesus as the only way to be saved and not go to hell. Because one day Jesus will return riding on a horse from the sky and he's going to judge the world. When you start saying these things, the people in your hometown, the people in your family, they're gonna look at you and think, oh, okay, Mr. Churchy Pants. I bailed you out of jail. Oh, you're gonna get all holy with me? I got pictures of us doing keg stands in college. You're gonna get all Jesus-y on me? You've had more failed marriages than I have. See, the issue won't, won't actually be our past because the issue isn't actually Jesus's family history. It's gonna be what we're saying. And they'll grab whatever straws they can. See, Jesus, he had no sin in his life. Their offense wasn't really about his family. It's about what he was saying. And the offense of Jesus is unavoidable, but keep speaking. And that's what happened to John the Baptist. What happens to John? Look at chapter 14. You can see how all of these stories are connected. At that time, 14.1, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the report about Jesus. And he says, this is John the Baptist. And he told his servants, he's been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. So he's giving us another insight how Herod's offended about Christ. Herod rejects Christ. But then as you're reading, Matthew knows, oh, well, how is Herod thinking John's been raised from the dead? How did John die? He tells us how John dies. So Herod's this governmental ruler positioned there by Rome to rule over this area. And he has John in prison for one clear reason. He spoke truth to power. Look at verse three. Herod had arrested John, chained him, same guy yelling on the Jordan River, put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been, here's why, John had been telling him, it is not lawful, it is not right for you to have her. John was put in prison by Herod for one reason. He spoke up for the sanctity of marriage. Herod, 
It is wrong for you to have another man's wife and you are defiling marriage. You are defiling yourself. You're defiling the kingdom. Stop it. And you can see this is your brother's wife, his sister-in-law. So you take all of these things together. Herod is an abuser of power. Herod is an abuser of people. And Herod is a creep. And John says all of these things and it gets him arrested. And then it gets worse. Herod's birthday rolls around. Look at what happens. Verse, verse six. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath, I'll give you whatever you want. Herod's birthday party happens, has a big party, a big banquet, and the creep factor develops more. Herod's daughter, Herodias' daughter, which would be who? Herod's niece dances before him and you can fill in all the details. He promises her, I'll give you whatever you want. He's wooing her, abusing his position, trying to manipulate her. And she tells her mom, Herod said, whatever I want. And what does Herodias say? Tell him I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's how John dies. That's how this great prophet this is how the one who announced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. This is how his life of testifying for Christ, this is how it ends. In an undignified way, head on a platter presented before Herodias because Herod is an immoral creep. Beloved, John the Baptist took on a Christian ethic. He became an activist and it got him killed. Beloved, if you live out your faith, if you talk out your faith, your head may not end up on a platter in America, but your job might. Listen, if you take on a Christian ethic, relationships might get lost. There is a time and place for every conversation, of course, and wisdom is needed. And I know that we think, oh, I don't want to talk about this right now with a coworker. I don't want to talk about this right now with a family member. And there is wisdom when to have all of these conversations. But listen, wisdom doesn't mean censorship. Wisdom is patient. Wisdom is not pandering. So when you do speak the Christian ethic, you will and you could suffer not just from people on the left, but also from people on the right, from, from liberal and conservative viewpoints. And here's what I mean. If you speak about the Christian ethic of the womb, of being pro-life, you will get hammered by friends and coworkers on the left. And if you speak about the immorality of the president, or if you speak about the refugee crisis, or if you speak about racism, you'll get hammered by friends and coworkers on the right. Why? Because the kingdom of God isn't right or left. The kingdom of God isn't red or blue. The kingdom of God is not even in the center. The kingdom of God is from above. And it is from a, another plane, another plane of thinking. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So here's what I want to remind us, beloved. We cannot affirm Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and then also not affirm his Christian ethics because Jesus is Lord of all. 
And he is kind and he is merciful and he is generous and he is Lord of all and he has an offer for every sinner on the planet. Look at the offer of Jesus now. So John's disciples remove his body, a headless body, and they go and tell Jesus about it. And look what happens. Verse 13 of chapter 14, when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. This, is, this has affected Jesus. He loves John. He cares about John. He can't believe this happened to his friend, his, and most likely his cousin. So he's withdrawing to go pray, to be alone, but in fashion, because of Jesus, who he is, crowds heard about it and they follow him on foot. And he gets ashore, verse 14. He saw a large crowd and look, Jesus had compassion on them. I mean, he's in the middle of grieving about John the Baptist and he sees this crowd and he pauses and has compassion on them and heals their sick. I just love that Jesus has compassion on them because the same is true of you and me. When we go toward Jesus in our neediness and in our mess, when we, when we realize we can't figure it out, Jesus has compassion on us and, and look, look at what he does, verse 15. Evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted, it's already late, send the crowds away, they can go get food in the villages and buy food for themselves. There's nothing to eat out here, they say. Everything's shutting down. Tell the people to hit the road, Jesus. So you see the contrast? Jesus had compassion on the crowds. His disciples have no compassion on the crowd. Get them out of here, Jesus. They have no faith-driven, theologically informed imagination either. They couldn't fathom, what, Jesus, what are we gonna do in this situation? They don't even have a mustard seed level of faith. You see? And what does Jesus say? 16, they don't need to go anywhere. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You guys feed them, give them something to eat. Jesus knows how much food they have, but the disciples don't know how much food they have. They don't see what Jesus can do with their little they don't see what Jesus can do with a mustard seed, a food, five loaves, tiny. When we think of five loaves, don't think of five loaves of Nature Valley, Sara Lee, whatever bread at H-E-B. I mean, we're talking tiny little things and two fish. And don't think those bass that you, you, know, you hold out for the picture really far so they look huge. These are tiny, this is sack lunch kind of fish. And look at what Jesus says, verse 18. So they talk about, we only have five loaves, two fish, 18. Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. And what happens? You know what happens. Jesus multiplies this food. He holds it up to the Father, prays, blesses it, and then the crowd is fed over and over and over and over. And Matthew writes 5,000 men in verse 21, not counting women and children. This number could be anywhere between 10, I mean, this could be 10,000 people. This could be 20,000 people that Jesus feeds with two slices of Wonder Bread and a few slices of lunch meat. He keeps going and he keeps feeding and keeps feeding. He keeps meeting their needs more and more and more. And it says they have leftovers, 12 baskets. There could be a, a parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel. There could, there could be stuff like that happening, on, happening. But just think, why leftovers? Why leftovers? Well, isn't, I mean, obviously Jesus could perform the miracle to what's exactly needed. Why these leftovers? You know why there's leftovers? Because God's grace is always overwhelming. 
God's grace is always going to outnumber your weaknesses. Beloved, Jesus takes what we perceive to be so tiny and so insignificant, and he does more with it than we could ever imagine, ever. And this little story, this little miracle here, this little section is so encouraging to me and in ministry, and I hope it is for you too. When I'm preaching or when I'm studying or, or when I'm trying to evangelize and I, or when I'm trying to, to love my neighbor as, as myself or, I, or I'm trying to do good works, I feel like I have two moldy slices of Wonder Bread and two dry slices of dried up Carl Budig lunch meat. Have you ever had Carl Budig lunch meat? It is the thinnest. I mean, you can almost not see it. It has almost no flavor. It's dirt cheap. I'm sorry if that's what you like. I feel like that's what I bring to the table. But what I also have is Jesus. And what does Jesus say about our impressive, our unimpressiveness that we have? Look what he says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And he can do something with it. This is what Jesus does. You bring your unimpressiveness, you bring your weakness to me, and I will multiply it. And that's, this is my hope for ministry and good works and trying to love my neighbor. I just want to bring it to you, Jesus. And that's really all we try to do every Sunday is just to bring you to him, to show you him, to show you his love and his cross and his empty tomb and his forgiveness, his power, his grace, his invitation, and just say, here you go, Lord, you, you do a work. And brothers and sisters, I want you to do the same thing. You don't need to have more than five loaves and two fish. You don't need to have a seminary education. You don't need to have read the Bible the whole way through. You don't need to have all the apologetic questions and answers figured out. You just bring your prayers. You just bring your heart. You bring your good works. Bring your love for your neighbor, that person you're praying for. You say, I'm bringing it to you, Jesus. Bring it to him. And then look what happens. Jesus doesn't pass out the food, does he? Look, 19, he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. This is a picture of what ministry and you being a minister of the gospel will look like. We pass it out. We take it to Jesus. Jesus gives it back to us, and we give it to the people. This is how you do mission. This is how you do ministry. This is how you will do evangelism. From being with Jesus, from receiving from Jesus, and then giving it all to the world and to others in need. You get it from Jesus, from being with Jesus. Friends, we can only give people what we have received from Jesus. The food miracle here teaches us about Jesus' power to provide and Jesus' power to make ministry happen when we are bumbling sinners and we can't see it. The disciples don't see it. They're not the ones who go, Jesus, we have a great idea. Jesus has the great ideas. We don't see how stuff is gonna happen, but Jesus says, I got it, I got it. Bring it to me. And if we will bring our empty hands of faith to Jesus, Jesus will make 
the power come down. Even when we can't see it, just like the disciples on the water. The, the story ends, the chapter ends with the disciples taking a night boat ride to the other side. Jesus dismisses the crowds and he goes and, goes and does what he's wanted to do all along, go and pray. And as he's praying, look, verse 24, while he's praying into the night, verse 24, meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus sees them struggling, sees them getting hit by the waves, probably sees the water coming into the boat. And Jesus, because he's Jesus, says, I gotta go help them. I'm gonna go meet them out there. And what does Jesus do? He goes and grabs another boat. No. He walks on the water to meet them. He walks out on the water to meet them. Look at it. 25, Jesus came toward them walking on the sea. The H2O molecules obey the Lord Jesus. They become stable under his feet. And Jesus displays his power and his power as God in the flesh. And, and notice that we gotta mentally get the picture because I know wrongly I've thought about this story as though Jesus was walking on a serene sea. No, there's a storm happening. There are waves. This, this, this painting shows it right. He, Jesus is walking on a wave pool. He's walking up the hills and down the hills of waves. And the disciples see someone on the water and they're terrified and yell out, it's a ghost. I mean, what else, would, what, what would you think? Your brain wouldn't go to, I bet that's our buddy Jesus. You would be freaked out like them. And what does Jesus say? Verse 27, immediately they yell, they scream. Jesus says, whoa, have courage. Guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Don't be afraid. Right here, beloved, Jesus speaks to us too. Because if you know the one who is saying, it is I, it's me. If you know who that is, your fears begin to untangle. Just like I think so many times in, in marriage or another, walking into the office or whatever, and I, you know, coming into our house late at night, and now he didn't hear the door chime or see my text, hey, I'm, I'm coming home, and here's me rustling around in the kitchen. Jeff, hey, it's me. Phew. Are coming to the office, second person, whatever, Carolyn's all, already gonna be there. And we, we come in, it's me. Like, you don't have to worry. It's not some like crazy guy coming in to rob you or whatever. Okay, whew. Your, your fears, when you know who the person is, your fears untangle. When Jesus says here in verse 30, it is I, or I'm sorry, when he says in 27, it is I. This is more literally him saying, I am. But in English, it looks weird to put I am. Have courage, I am. But he is saying, I am. Like Moses in front of the burning bush. Who is this? Who's talking to me from the burning bush? I am 
who I am is speaking to you. And Jesus here says the same thing to his disciples in this tumble of water. I am. And when you know the Son of God is with you, when you know that Jesus is by your side, you can have courage in this life. You can have courage on mission. You can have courage in making disciples and in, in the midst of all your struggles and fears. That when you know the death-defeating Savior is watching over you from a distance, I mean, he sees them from a distance. He's attentive to them. And he goes near to them. You know, listen, I, maybe you just need to know today that Jesus sees you. Maybe you just need to know today that Jesus sees you and that Jesus loves you and he's with you. In the midst of all your marriage struggles, in the midst of all your work struggles, in the midst of your parenting dilemmas and all that you have, your suffering, your sickness, and all in the midst of all these things, just know that even though it, it seems like he's at a distance, he sees you and he's with you. And he says, have courage. But Peter struggles to believe this. Is that surprising? Peter struggles to believe it's Jesus, which is understandable. It's not like they've seen this in his bag of miracles before. And Jesus said, what does Peter say? Jesus, if it's you, tell me to walk, command me to walk out on the water. How do you come up with that? I don't know how Peter comes up with that, but we love it, don't we? He says, command me to come out, Lord. And what does Jesus say? 29, he said, come, come on, Lord. You gotta imagine all the other disciples are going, are you crazy? And what happens? Peter walks out of the boat. You gotta imagine just that first hand on the side of the boat and just that, the, the faith to take that first step. And he stands on the water. And he starts walking towards Jesus, step after step. You gotta imagine the other disciples' minds are getting blown. And then the waves come. Peter looks, takes his eyes off of Jesus, sees the waves, and he begins to sink, and he's gonna die. And what happens? He yells out in verse 30. He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus, I need you. And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and grabs him and pulls him up and says, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? What I love about this passage here at the end is Jesus telling Peter, come. Come on. If, if, if the words bring them to me about the fish and loaves, our hope for ministry, that, that bring them to me. These words from Jesus come to me. They're the hope for our lives, Redeemer Church. He, Jesus invites us to himself. Come to me. When we are needy sinners, when we are doubting sinners, when we are faith-dwindling Christians, when we're scared and we're courageless Christians, Jesus says, come to me. Come and walk on the water with me. And we think, well, I, gotta have the, I don't have the giftings for that. I don't have the ability. Peter does not have the gifting to walk on water. That's not in Paul's description of spiritual gifts in Romans or 1 Corinthians. But Jesus gives Peter what he needs to do it. And when we bring ourselves to him, when we come to him, Jesus will use bumbling disciples like us. But all we gotta do is go to him.
all we got to do is go to him. And yeah, Peter falters. But Peter does exactly what you should do when you falter. Lord, save me. And Jesus literally lifts him up from death. And you got to get into the mindset of, of a first century Jew. Water is terrifying. So to walk on it, that took great faith. And then to be sinking in it, a picture of literal physical and spiritual death, lights out, it's over, it's done, you can't come back for this, but a Lord save me can bring you back from everything that feels unreturnable. And you may feel like that, that you have done sins in your life, that you have done things that you have committed that you cannot come back from, but a Lord save me. A Lord save me said in faith can bring you back to new life. Jesus literally rips Peter out of the jaws of death. And when you call on Jesus, you see his cross as a payment for your sins, that you want forgiveness, you want him to deliver you from the second death. He will save you and he will pull you up from death because Jesus walks on death. This is a picture of him walking on the water. The death is a, is a vision of, the water is a vision of death. Everything sinks in it. You don't return from that, but Jesus walks on top of it as the one who will rise from the dead and that will walk over death itself. Peter's delivered. And they get back into the boat. You imagine that now? Peter's sopping wet and Jesus dry. What do you think they say to each other? What do you think their faces are like? How far do you think their jaws are all hanging? And look at the disciples' response. 33. They get into the boat. The wind stops, 33. Then those in the boat worshiped him. They've been awakened. They worshiped him and said, truly you are the son of God. This is the proper response to Jesus. We, we say to him, what well, we offer him, these right thoughts of Jesus that lead to the right worship of Jesus. You are the son of God. You're not just some teacher. You're not, you're not just a rabbi. You're not just some wonder worker. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah. And when you know that, beloved, you live for him. You'll walk with him. You're gonna listen to him. You're gonna, you're gonna obey him. Is this how you see Jesus? Truly, he is the son of God. And when you know that, you have no problem telling a friend, Jesus can save you from your sins. He really is truly the son of God. He's not just one spiritual figure and all of the religions in the world of human history. He truly is the son of God. And I, I was debating like when to show this, uh, this thread throughout Matthew. And, and it was a lot of passages and a lot of time, but this thread in the gospel of Matthew has just been undeniable. We're gonna see it more, but I just wanted it to show you today because I think this is an apex of it here in the gospel of Matthew. There is a constant thread throughout the book over the battle of who is Jesus. Matthew showing you his identity, Matthew showing you what other people think his identity is, and Matthew showing you here's who he is and I want you to decide. I want you to trace it with me. How do we see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew? In chapter one, the angels announce, this is Jesus. He's gonna save his people from their sins. In chapter three, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Also in chapter three, the Father says at Jesus' baptism, this is my son. And chapter four, Satan says, if you are the son of God. In chapter eight, it's the first waves, wind and waves event. Do you remember that? 
Jesus tells the storm to stop after he wakes up from his little nap. And what do the disciples say this time? Who is this that the wind and seas obey him? Do you see now? Now the second waves event, they say, truly you are the son of God. In chapter eight, the demons say, what do you want to do with us, son of God? The demons know who he is. Chapter nine, the blind men say, son of David, have mercy on us. Now in chapter 11, John the Baptist doubts, are you the one? In chapter 13, his hometown rejects him. In chapter 14, the, the second wind and waves event, the disciples say, truly you are the son of God. And that should cue you, if you know the gospel of Matthew, to the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross when Jesus died, when he says, truly this man was the son of God. And probably the second apex we'll see in a couple weeks is in Matthew 16, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? So who do you say that he is? This is what Matthew wants you to see, what Matthew wants you to know. This is really the whole point of the biopic of the gospel according to Matthew. Who do you say that he is? Matthew wants you to answer that. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to see. The people of Gennesaret, that last section, they recognize him. And it says in 35, they alert the whole town. Everybody, come on, get your healings from Jesus. He can do it and he does it. So who do you say that he is? And you can gauge who you say that he is by how you respond to him. Do you have you put your faith in him? Do you obey him? Do you receive his compassion? Do you bear any, do you just take on the offense that comes with following him? Do you receive the broken bread in his body? Do you receive the cup of his blood? Go to him. Have courage. He is the I am. Let's pray together. King Jesus, help us now to truly follow you. We know offenses will come. We know there will be trials. We know there will be challenges. But you are the one who takes a mustard seed, who takes tiny loaves and tiny fish. You're, you're the one who can take simple faith and turn it into something that will encourage us, that will blow us away. So help us now, King Jesus that we would not be like the hometown disciples, the hometown people, but we would be like your true disciples, willing to follow you to remote places, willing to follow you, depending on you for all of our needs and responding back how you act in this world, how you act in your word, how you act in our lives and truly say to you, truly you are the son of God. And therefore, we live it all for you. We live it all for you, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.